0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job, and you can find out more and give them a call. Uh, the website is com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute and constitutional scholar. We'll finish up our discussion on the right to discriminate and anti-discriminatory discriminatory laws. We'll also begin our discussion on voter IDs, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, will be joining us, as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the uh, University of Houston Space Architecture, author of many books, his latest, Just Out, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier, a book that he wrote with uh, Buzz Aldrin. It is December the 15th, and on this day in 1978, one of the most dramatic announcements of the Cold War President Jimmy Carter stated as of January 1st, 1979, the United States would formally recognize the Communist People's Republic of China, or the PRC, and sever relations with Taiwan. Following Mao Zedong's successful revolution in China in 1949, the United States steadfastly refused to recognize the new communist regime. Instead, American continued to recognize and supply the nationalist Chinese government that had been established by Chiang Kai-shek, on the island of Taiwan. In 1950, during the Korean War, U.S. and PRC armed forces clashed. During the 1960s, the United States was angered by PRC's support and aid to North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. By the 70s, however, a new set of circumstances existed from the U.S. viewpoint Closer relations with the PRC would bring economic and political benefits. Economically, American businessmen are eager to try and exploit the new huge Chinese market. Politically, U.S. and policymakers believe they could play the China card, using closer diplomatic relations with PRC to pressure the Soviet Union into becoming more malleable on a variety of issues, including arms agreements. The PRC had also become a desired better relations with its old enemy. It sought the large increase in trade with the United States that would result from normalized relations and particularly looked forward to the technologically uh, advanced way it might obtain uh, the information from America. The PRC was also looking for allies. A military showdown with its former ally Vietnam was in the making and Vietnam had a mutual support treaty with the Soviets. Carter's announcement that the diplomatic ties would be severed with Taiwan, which the PRC insisted on, angered many in Congress. The Taiwan Relations Act was quickly passed in retaliation. It gave Taiwan nearly the same status as any other nation recognized by the United States and also mandated that arms sales continue to the nationalist government. In place of the U.S. Embassy in Taiwan, and an unofficial representative called the American Institute in Taiwan would continue to serve U.S. interests in that country. So uh, on this day, we formed relationships with the communist regime in China. I wouldn't want to call it a government. I guess it is, but irrespective, it's an uh, international uh, the criminal enterprise in my view. Nevertheless, uh, and then we began to fund them like crazy, and they stole our IT and all kinds of things, and uh, we know where we are today. Congressional Democrats passed a debt ceiling increase and sent, sent it to President Joe Biden's desk early yesterday, uh, or actually today, the deadline that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned could mark the start of the first ever U.S. default on its bonds. The state uh, president is expected to sign the borrowing limit hike just hours before the Treasury Department forecasts it would exhaust its tools to pay the government bills, an outcome that could upend the U.S. economy. The Democrat held Senate and House passed the debt ceiling increase with only one Republican vote. The Senate approved the measure by 50 to 49 uh, on party lines. The House followed early Wednesday, passing it by 221 to 209, a margin with only one GOP representative joining every Democrat. Once signed by Biden, the resolution would increase the debt ceiling by $2.5 trillion. On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the measure would raise the borrowing limit to a level commensurate with funding necessary to get into 2023. Yellen estimated the U.S. would run out of its ways to pay its debt on December the 15th if Congress did not raise the debt limit before the Treasury missed its payment. The country would default for the first time in its history. The Treasury Secretary said she expects the U.S. would slip into a recession if Washington failed to make its debt payments. Last week, 14 Republicans joined every Democrat to allow a one-time vote to lift the debt ceiling with a simple majority, the agreement, crafted by Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, ended the GOP's months-long threat to filibuster a borrowing limit hike. The deal allowed Democrats to increase the debt limit on its, their own without needing the 60 votes usually required to break a filibuster. The Senate is split 50-50 by party, of course, but uh, Vice President Kamala Harris did not need to break a tie because uh, Senator Cynthia Loomis, from Republican from uh, Wyoming, missed the vote on Tuesday. Democrats and Republicans typically vote together to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. This time, however, the GOP contended the Democrats should increase the borrowing limit on their own as they tried to pass the $1.75 trillion safety net, uh, social safety net, safety net, and climate package, despite Republican opposition. So we've got it, uh, another $2.5 trillion under the, after the $29 trillion we've already amassed in debt. Will we ever be able to pay this back? I have my doubts. While well, the producer price index, which measures the inflation at a wholesale level, not retail, but wholesale, soared 9.6% year over year as of November, growing at the fastest rate ever, the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics announced on Tuesday, uh, the Bureau uh, reported that the ppi which measures inflation before it hits consumers grew by 0.8 percent in november as of october the measure grew by just 8.6 uh, percent on a year-over-year basis and just 0.6 percent in the month alone meaning the wholesale prices grew more to a worse yearly figure in november than they did in october economists projected a year-over-year increase of a core ppi which excludes food and energy prices which, by the way, grew faster, to be 7.2% year over year and a 0.4% increase in October. Demand for goods uh, was the biggest driver for the surge in uh, producer prices, increasing 1.2% in November, slightly down from 1.3% in uh, October. Final demand services inflation increased 0.7% in November, much faster than the October's 0.2%. Now, that's on services. Meanwhile, the consumer price index increased 0.9% in November, bringing the key inflation indicators year-over-year increase to 6.8%, the highest figure in nearly four decades. A year ago, economists predicted a 2% inflation rate, But in less than 12 months on one-party rule in Washington, consumers are instead facing the highest inflation rate in 40 years. This did not happen by accident, said uh, Kevin McCarthy. President Biden's anti-worker, anti-American energy uh, agenda has consumers paying more virtually every time they go check out at the counter, said McCarthy. And by the way, the U.S. Treasury uh, Department is reporting a record amount of taxes collected in the first two months of fiscal 2022. In October and November, they collected $565 billion, also collected a record $282 billion in individual income taxes in the first two months of this year. But even with record taxes, the government spent more than it collected while collecting its record 565 billion trillion billion dollars in total taxes in the first two months, the federal government spent 921 billion dollars, resulting in a deficit of 356 billion dollars in the first two months of the year. The agency's monthly statement reveals the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services spent the most money, 254 billion dollars, and in the first two months of 2022, followed by Social Security And in third place, the Defense Department uh, spent $126 billion. Well, CDC COVID-19 response team published a weekly report on Friday where a vast majority of patients infected with Omicron variant identified in the U.S. were fully vaccinated individuals. That's right. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that of the 43 COVID cases caused by Omicron variants, 34 were fully vaccinated, Of those fully vaccinated, 14 had actually received their booster shots, but five of those received their additional shots less than 14 days before. Only eight people were unvaccinated who got infected with the Omicron variants, and one person had a status of unknown. So the CDC has added that the mutations in Omicron might increase transmissibility, confer resistance to therapeutics, or partially escape infection or vaccine-induced immunity. This means the vaccines offer less protection against Omicron. So, for all those who've been uh, vaccinated, it looks like Omicron is still going to be an issue. Although, of course, it's been reported it's got uh, pretty mild symptoms. And just a few days before the end of the semester, Cornell University is shutting down its campus and moving final exams online because of a recent surge in COVID-19 cases among its overwhelmingly vaccinated population. In a message released Tuesday, Cornell President Martha Pollack said the campus community that the university's surveillance testing has continued to identify the rapid spread of COVID-19 among students in spite of the fact (laughs) that everybody's vaccinated. So all these vaccines, the mask mandates, all these things, are they working? A lot of evidence suggests no, they're not. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. (laughs) at Lulubees.com and stop by Lullaby's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, Director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you. That's call your Resources.org or call the Senior Center directly at 239 252 4541. That's 252
0: 4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more and download the app from the choicesocial.us website. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
4: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. Now, we've been talking about anti-discrimination, discriminatory laws, and rights to discriminate, kind of two conflicting concepts. I'd like to finish that up with a couple of questions. Is there a parallel between forcing private pro- uh, parties to serve gay weddings and forcing private hotels and restaurants to provide rooms and, and food to black travelers?
4: Well, somewhat, but not quite. Uh, bakers and, and florists and photographers and caterers, when they're required to serve a gay wedding, they, they perform an expressive act You know that implies that they have support for the institution of of gay marriage. So that that goes beyond simply a willingness to to accept and to associate with gay people. By contrast, if you take a hotel owner and you compel him to provide rooms to black travelers, that doesn't endorse their lifestyles, as would uh, the case of the baker who has to make a cake for a gay wedding. Mm. So the, I think the main point is this if the state fosters private discrimination the constitution bars that whenever wherever it occurs but private discrimination that isn't facilitated by government that can be condemned with means that don't involve government so you you can refuse to patronize bigots there's social ostracism there's adverse public publicity regarding the discriminatory acts. So, you know, it may be morally wrong to discriminate, but in a totally free society, private parties should have a political right, Mm -hmm. that is a right against government, uh, to do so. We can can condemn immoral conduct like a lying or infidelity or even bigotry, but that doesn't mean we necessarily empower government to step in and take remedial action.
1: So interesting. So on balance, then, are free markets and competition adequate to safeguards against uh, discrimination?
4: Well, they're not a perfect solution, uh, but they may be the best of the available solutions. They do offer built-in incentives against discrimination without government intervention, because generally, you know, businesses want more customers, and they want the most capable employees. Right. So consider the... You know, the obvious case of the NBA, it's dominated by African-American players. That's not because the NBA owners were especially enamored of integration. It's because those players were talented, and they attracted large and profitable audiences. Right. Or You know, I, I had a personal experience growing up playing piano in the Washington, D.C. area during the 1960s. There were actually two musicians unions, one black and one white. And the black musicians, they had plenty of work, in part because they played great music, in part because they had a lower pay scale. Mm-hmm. So anybody that wanted to discriminate by not hiring black musicians, they had to pay a, a, a bigotry premium. Along <laughs> uh, comes government and forces the two unions to merge one pay scale for both the blacks and the whites. So predictably, the unemployment rate among the black musicians goes up. Yeah. They, they still played the great music. Yeah. But the customers who were bigots were able to discriminate, and they didn't have to pay a price for it. So unregulated, I think, competitive markets penalize bigots. Government intervention uh, perversely encourages uh, racial prejudice. So we should allow private but not public discrimination, even if the rationale is that the private service provider simply doesn't want to associate with the persons who are seeking service, because the right to asso- – the right not to associate, that's the flip side of the constitutional right to associate, both of which are guaranteed by the First Amendment.
1: Yeah, so interesting. But hey, just out of curiosity, we've got no smoking mandates in restaurants and all kinds of things. Yeah, My view is this. those things probably would have worked themselves out without government interference, inevitably, because to your point, businesses are looking for new customers. They want to be able to satisfy their customers that are coming in. Uh, But unfortunately, it was extracted. That kind of uh, behavior was extracted and forced by government. What are your thoughts?
4: I agree entirely. This situation would have worked itself out. Moreover, nobody was forced to patronize a business that allowed smoking. It was certainly obvious when you entered the premises whether smoking would be allowed or not allowed. Mm -hmm. If you didn't like it, go down the block. I'm sure there (laughs) were plenty. Of establishments that offered no smoking environments, and as time went on and the ills caused by smoking became more obvious, uh, the number of establishments offering no smoking environments increased, and the number of establishments offering <coughs> smoking environments decreased without government. So, yes, I think I agree with you.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think an important admonition from going forward is to <laughs> let the markets work it out. Quit interfering. Absolutely. So Bob, let's, let's uh, move to this whole notion of voter IDs. What are the constitutional protections for voting rights?
4: Well, under the original constitution, the people uh, had a right to vote for the House of Representatives. Uh, the right to vote for senators wasn't added until the 17th Amendment in 1913. Right. Uh, formerly, right. the uh, senators were elected by state legislatures. Interestingly, There is no federal right of individuals to vote for president. Uh, The states can grant such a right, and as we know, all of the states have done so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the court held in the infamous Bush v. Gore case that when the state vests the right to vote for president in the people, then that that right to vote is considered to be a fundamental right, and that designation is important when it comes to uh, to uh, voting discrimination. Um, protections against voting discrimination were, were added beginning way back in 1870 with the 15th Amendment protecting African Americans. The 19th Amendment protected women. The 24th Amendment said <clears throat> you're protecting poor people because it abolished the poll tax. The 26th Amendment protected 18-year-olds eight, and older. So in each of those amendments, uh, by the way, the right was only granted to citizens. So illegal immigrants, because they're not citizens, do not have federal constitutional protection against voting discrimination. neither do legal immigrants, unless they are citizens. Of course, they can be granted protections under state law but not under the federal constitution.
1: Yeah, I think that's happening in New York right now. So what circumstances would a voter ID law be uh, unconstitutional?
4: It would be unconstitutional if it discriminated against some voters without a compelling reason by government. So to justify a discriminatory voter ID law, a state would have to show there's significant voter fraud, for example, and that the law would fix the problem and that there was no other way to accomplish that fix uh, without discriminating. So if you take a voter ID, for example, it's not what they call narrowly tailored, Mm -hmm. which is a constitutional requirement. If you force a voter ID on 235 million potential voters because you think you're going to detect Uh, a maximum of 8 million non-citizens, none of whom, by the way, is legally registered, so they would have been detected in any event. But briefly, the justification for discrimination is that three-part test. Compelling need, the law is going to fix the problem, no better way to do it.
1: And that's because it's a fundamental right.
4: Right, that's correct.
1: Bob Levy again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit the very robust website, Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Great to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs>
0: of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network.
1: The Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities with dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett-Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions visit golfshoreplayhouse.org that's golfshoreplayhouse.org we'll see you at the show
0: welcome back to the bob harton show and now here's your host bob harton
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now. Just go to the website, org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So we usually start our conversation off with what's some good news, uh, what are your thoughts
2: well on a personal note today is the 53rd anniversary of my return from vietnam so wow it it amazes me when i consider that it seems like yesterday and uh 53 years seems to have gone so quickly bob i can't i can't even imagine but here i am 53 years later uh more good news is today is the 230th birthday of our bill of rights now just to uh Give that some emphasis let me read the preamble most people don't realize there was a preamble to the bill of rights mm. but there was it says the states having at the time of their adopting the constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its power that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added in other words the bill of rights 230 years ago was added to the constitution uh, because the states had a deep concern about the overextension of government powers, and they did everything they could to try to ensure that would not happen, yep. and that took the form of the Bill of Rights, Bob.
1: You know, it's in fact it's curious that uh, most. Of those who uh, did not want to adopt the Bill of Rights said, why should we have a Bill of Rights? Because one could assume that all rights, the only rights the government has are the 18 enumerated powers spelled out in the Constitution. All other rights are to the states or to individuals. And they said that by naming those uh, uh, rights in the Bill of Rights, it would perhaps indicate or Uh, uh, indicate that uh, we should have those rights or the uh, rights that people have and all others go to the government. So it was a real controversy at the time.
2: I, I agree with that to a large extent. We can see that currently, for example, with the challenges to the Second Amendment. Now, the Second Amendment did not actually grant the right to bear arms. It was just clarifying that the government had no right to intrude. And yet when we hear the debate on the right to bear arms, Excuse me. Based on the Second Amendment, Mm -hmm. they use the wording of the Second Amendment as a basis for the potential of rejecting uh, the right to bear arms. That is exactly what the uh, some of the founders uh, feared when they resisted the Bill of Rights. Um, In general, though, the states just had no confidence uh, in the uh, in the federal government. Uh, So they just did everything they could to ensure uh, that they would not overstep their boundary. Of course, we can see today that that is, uh, to a large extent, failed. But again, that concern was a legitimate concern, and I... I think, as I mentioned, for the Second Amendment, we can see that being fulfilled today, Bob.
1: Yeah, in, in my my view, and it, it'd be interesting your comments on this. I thought uh, that the Bill of Rights was uh, those the wording the right to bear arms because there is a national militia. Uh, we have them because uh, be, uh, the uh, let's face it, the uh, government has an armed force. So uh, people should be able to have their right have their uh, rights to bear arms as well as protection against the government. Is that not true?
2: Well, it is true. And, and again, I think that offering any explanatory basis for the right to bear arms uh, feeds into the, uh, the, the, those that are resisting the right to bear arms. In mm. other words, it, it deserves no or needs no commentary. Right. The right to bear arms is an absolute. Uh, the government has no right to intrude on it, and it does not have to be explained in terms of value-derived, Bob. Now I, I'm not directly attacking your comment. Your comments are extremely valid, but I think as if we have discussions about absolute rights, uh, it lends into the potential that rights are negotiable. And I don't like to have conversations that make something that's an absolute and negotiable uh, item. Bob,
1: uh, makes sense to me. By the way, uh, kudos to you. Uh, you published an article or column uh, <clears throat> summarizing some of the great comments of Ayn Rand uh, who's had so much influence in our society it's on my website by the way you can go to uh, bobharden.com to go to the pull down tab correct me if I'm wrong and you'll find uh, Andy's uh, c- uh, column there uh, can, can, can you can you comment at all about uh, the influence and importance uh, yeah, of Ayn Yeah, let
2: me give a little background. I uh, had taken the the popular view that uh, Ayn Rand was part of the original American cancel culture. She was being uh, attacked by by almost everyone on the left at least and and many on the right uh, back during uh, you know my early days of being a faculty member and I bought into that, you know, because I had not read Ayn Rand. One of my students had the audacity to come up to me and say, Professor Joppa, perhaps, you know, they asked me, I guess, if if I'd read Ayn Rand, I admitted I hadn't, and they suggested I should. It was the reading of Ayn Rand that I think was the major turning point in my my philosophic political life. Hmm. Uh, It was uh, dramatic in terms of the impact. Let me just read a few thoughts that Ayn Rand had on a, a free society, on our constitution, and our Uh, and our Declaration of Independence. She said a free society like any other human product cannot be achieved by random means, by mere wishing or by the leader's good intentions. A complex legal system based on objectively valid principles is required to make a society free and to keep it free. A system that does not depend on the motives, the moral character or the intentions of any good officials. A system that leaves no opportunity, no legal loophole for the development of of tyranny. Uh, her wordings are, are so precise, so meaningful, so strong in her articulation of where America uh, had its origins and where it would it, uh, have its fulfillment and, and what would go wrong with America. Uh, even today, certainly uh, Atlas Shrugged still is uh, the the second most popular book uh, beh- behind the behind the Bible in terms of of sales and in uh, in, in, in uh, in usefulness, I guess, to the American public, right, by, right. by actual polls. So uh, Ayn Rand remains, although her death, I think, in 1982 is, 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 is long behind us, uh, she remains a strong, influential force among many. A true conservatives in America, Bob.
1: Yeah. Now, she's an objectiveness, and uh, it's important to point out that, of course, like the Founding Fathers, they felt oppressed by the government of England and uh, wrote the Constitution, the Preamble, the Declaration of Independence with that in mind. She suffered the same types of uh, situation in, uh, in Russia, Soviet Russia. And uh, coming to the United States, uh, she was vehement about the whole notion of protecting individual liberty and personal rights, the rights to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, be able to determine your own life uh, based on uh, your property and based on your own thoughts and your own liberty. So uh, her comments are just really prescient, especially today, because we're seeing so many of our rights uh, being threatened.
2: There's no doubt that her experiences under the Bolsheviks in the in the 20s, late teens, early part of the 20th century. Uh, to a large extent, informed her. They didn't, uh, they didn't propagandize her. They informed her as to the implications when she came to America. She saw some of the early forms of these things taking place. That was certainly as a result of uh, Woodrow Wilson and his administration. And then she saw that uh, blossoming under, uh, under flank Franklin Roosevelt, the movement towards forms uh, that would be similar to the forms that she saw in, uh, in Soviet Russia. Uh, at that point, she started to write extensively. Her first major work, *The Fountainhead*, uh, certainly was a, a revealing statement of uh, of the implications of a of a free economic system. And then her her, her magnum opus, uh, *The uh, Atlas Shrugged*, certainly was the uh, I think the defining element of many many who developed their political acumen in the. Uh, in the American, in the process, as a result of having read Atlas Shrugged.
1: Yes, that's so true. And uh, that story, if you have, if you're not familiar with Atlas Shrugged, it's a great read. It's a long read, it's a 1000 page book. Your and the one fifty page speech on money is just unbelievable. But I would say that uh, what you can see in the behavior that we're in Atlas Shrugged, we're getting to see parallel behavior right here in the United States, including what you the things that you see in Animal Farm and 1984 and and, and other. Uh, prescient books as well. Well,
2: there's no doubt that George Orwell certainly had the same awareness. Uh, uh, obviously, as Rand, he was not as. Uh, articulate, and I think we have to remember that her native language was Russian. Yeah. When she came to America, she spoke some English, but she eventually become became one of the finest writers of English in uh, uh, in the American literary circle. So, uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, she became one of the first impact people for uh, the American Council Culture. They went after her with a viciousness, Bob, and uh, that that continues even till today. Uh, this is a fine woman who uh, loved America. Uh, she, wished, she loved America as it should have been and what it could have been. She had serious doubts about America in the uh, early 80s before her death. Uh, she saw American businessmen becoming complicit in the, in, in the theft of freedom. And so as as she began to age, she began to have more serious concerns about the destination of America. And I think those have been fulfilled uh, certainly as we're seeing America today, Bob.
1: No doubts. I, I, I'm in, interjecting here a comment, but uh, but yesterday, Linda and I watched Tucker Carlson today, the uh, interview that she, he did with uh, uh, the great uh, Brexit leader. And now his name is escaping me, quite frankly. Farge. Farge. Yeah, yeah all right. And uh, he, it's just so interesting. And he sees such some of the same things that she saw. Uh, and uh, it's, so I, I just encourage our listeners to take a look at that. Uh, I
2: I might add that, uh, you know, I've known many people who were immigrants from communist countries, from whether we're talking the Bulgaria or the socialist process of Venezuela. It's amazing that these people come to America and they are they're taken back by how far America has has devolved into forms that uh, where they came from. We're causing poverty and despair and shortages and, and and anguish for the people, and they they really can't understand why America would choose these forms that so obviously have failed wherever they've been applied. Now, of course, what these people say is they haven't been applied enough. It's the typical Democrat leftist communist type of of line where when something they do fails, they do not suggest it failed in itself. They suggest we didn't do. Enough of enough it. Of it. Now, that's,
1: that's right. Uh, yeah,
2: with, with that in mind, let me let me just say before I lose track of it that uh, Senator Blumenthal just was a, a participant in the 102nd anniversary of the birth of the American Communist Party. Yeah. It is so difficult for me, imagine, an American senator appearing there uh, and supporting the Build Back Better program of Biden at on a communist platform uh, in America in 2021. Uh, it is a... Um, uh, a sign of, of things to come, unfortunately, Bob, when a senator publicly can make that kind of linkage with the Communist Party of America.
1: Yeah. Well, a new survey of uh, registered voters in the United States by, let's see, who is it? Rasmussen. 53 uh, percent of registered U.S. voters just, uh, describe big Uh, They think that the entire Biden administration agenda can be described as big government socialism after months of Republicans and others. Similar comments about President Biden's trillion-dollar spending plans. The new uh, poll also shows that just 23 percent of respondents disagree with the characterization. And guess what? They don't like it. Uh, We're beginning to see – hispanics gravitate towards the republican party and because they they left the uh these types of programs they don't want these programs anymore so maybe the biden administration is an aberration it's not a new direction
2: well let's let's hope that's true i i had another essay which somewhat deals with that i I point out the uh, the Bolshevik rising to power and could not be dislodged by anything that could be see, seen as the popular vote or any kind of referendum that also applied to Stalin. It applied to Mussolini. It applied to uh, to any dictator, Pol Pot. Uh, none of them were dislodgeable uh, One of my uh, readers added in Mao as a as a uh, as a leader who could not be dislodged regardless of popular opinion, regardless of uh, of how the public felt. And and certainly for the most part, almost all of them at the beginning of their uh, tyrannical reigns were not popular. Uh, They they forced that popularity on their people. And and then at the end, of course, if they took a poll in, let's say Mao's China, he was one hundred and ten percent popular, not because he was, but because the uh, the the uh, the use of force was so blatant in all of these countries. Uh, So, you know, and by the way, speaking of all of this and getting back to Biden in keeping with it. Biden made a statement yesterday that is, is, is absolutely tone deaf in terms of uh, the concerns that many Americans have about about the elections. Biden said yesterday, and I, 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 I don't know if you picked up on it yet. Biden said the struggle is no longer about who gets to vote. It's about who gets to count
1: the vote. Yes, I did. Now, I saw um, amazingly,
2: it. that statement was made yesterday in America And I just read the comparable statement from Joe Stalin about 100 years ago where he said, I consider it completely unimportant who in the party will vote or how. But what is extraordinarily important is this, who will count the votes and how. So we see uh, Biden perhaps not even being aware that he is reflecting almost word for word the premise of uh, one of the great tyrants of the 20th century, Joe Stalin, that it's not the vote that counts. It's who gets to count the vote that counts. Yeah, uh, that's a scary comment in terms of what lies ahead in 2022. Bob.
1: It certainly is, and I, I will say, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the countries, for example, uh, Germany, they, they disarmed the people before this power was abs- became absolute. In other words, the, the uh, they had the power because people couldn't respond and couldn't uh, rise up against the government. Uh, it's that's not the case here in the United States.
2: Well, I think that's one of the unspoken things about uh, devices or, or uh, actions uh, that um, exist and are not, do, do not have to be used. For example, what I'm saying in regards to what you just said, Bob, the fact that we are an armed population with approximately 400 million weapons in the hands of American citizens, uh, do we know how uh, serious the intrusion of government would have been right. if it had not been for that? And you're absolutely right. Uh, One of the first moves of any uh, tyrannical government is to disarm the people, and certainly that would be something that is uh, a a dream for American leftists right now. Uh, We don't know how many many intrusions have been blocked by the very availability of, of arms within the American people, Bob.
1: So true. So, uh, just reflecting now on what's happening in the United States right now, we're talking reports today of massive inflation in our for we just got the it's not just for the retail but also for the wholesale uh, buyers of goods and services way up. Uh, it's uh, certainly not transitory. This inflation, oh, yeah,
2: the wholesale price index is up nine point six percent, which yeah. is a record. I think nine, uh, that's November's uh, reading. Uh, you know what that means uh, for, for those that are not aware is that is the cost of goods going into the producers. Uh, it is uh, a very prominent precursor of future consumer inflation. So when we see 9.6% being reflected in the cost of goods going into the producer, we know in a very short space of time that is going to be reflected in a deepening level of consumer inflation. So uh, that is why it has tremendous importance as a predictor of what lies just ahead, Bob.
1: So, uh, you know, that, given that and, of course, the uh, Build Back Better plan that's uh, being proposed, and I'm sure it's going to be scaled back somehow, they're going to try and push it through apparently by Christmas – uh, I mean, we're talking about real inflationary pressures uh, going forward in the United States.
2: Well, there's no doubt, and there's nothing with uh, the quantitative easing being uh, now uh, almost an unlimited way of, of p- dumping more money into the into the uh, money supply. Uh, it certainly is not something that has any end in sight. Uh, and we know there's an historic monetary philosophy that says a uh, any nation with a uh, with a central bank uh, can print all the money they want and somehow it'll all work out. And so what we're seeing is a a reflection of this presumption that our central bank can produce as much money as they want and it will have no subsequent impact. And that is a fool's dream, Bob, because mm-hmm. uh, obviously every place that's been tried, it, it, it fails completely and leads to hyperinflation, just as it did in the Weimar Republic, where um, in the morning a loaf of bread would cost a billion Deutschmarks uh, by the afternoon it would be 10 billion Deutschmarks. That is the kind of hyperinflation we might be looking at within the next few years or decade, Bob.
1: We can certainly hope not, but uh, irrespective, I mean, we're headed way down the wrong path, and the American people know it now. That's the interesting thing about this Rasmussen survey. So, uh, And and getting
2: back to that point, and I think it's an important point you're making, so I'm not rejecting it, but uh, I think we have to recognize that what happens in 2022 – and there's more and more people showing a concern for those elections coming up and their legality – Uh, most are also adding in something that we've talked about, that COVID-19 and and some of its variants will be utilized as a way of of, uh, increasing the amount of of electronic voting, the amount of ballot harvesting, the amount of uh, voting by mail, and uh, irregularities of voting always will be associated with those. We saw those in 2020, and I think by 2022, if nothing gets in their way, the, the skills of the left Uh, to manipulate the vote totals uh, is going to be even more dramatic. Uh, Even some of the um, quasi-legal implications of big tech shutting down some of the Republican voices, as they did in 2020, shutting down Republican voices and Republican uh, fundraising through Google in 2020 was a major problem. It was legal, but again, it produced what uh, anyone could see was an unfair election result. Bob.
1: Yeah, no question. Even James Clyburn, uh, one of the leaders, of course, in the uh, on Capitol Hill, suggested that hey, we're somehow, some way, we're going to pass these voter ID laws uh, uh, to uh, make sure that, for example, ballot harvesting and some of these other techniques are legal when uh, the 2022 elections come. So they haven't given up trying. They're working on it, and uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you you could be right.
2: Yeah, I, I think there are some acid tests that we can apply to some of these issues in terms of whether the left is truly serious. For example, in, in terms of, of voting, um, any any serious person with a vote would support voter ID. There's just nothing that should get in the way of voter ID being a part of a full voting process. So that's sort of like an acid test of their, of their sincerity uh, and their commitment to the vote. Uh, I think if we looked at uh, climate change, Uh, If they started to promote, let's say, nuclear power, I would say, geez, you know, maybe they're really serious about this issue. But as long as they don't promote nuclear power, I know that it's only a manipulative political issue for the left Uh, in terms of of COVID COVID and all of its uh, manifestations, unless they start to actively support ivermectin. I, I won't even mention hydroxychloroquine. We don't have to. Unless they actively support ivermectin, I know that they're not serious right. about the implications of COVID and its, and its variations. It was just a study, as a matter of fact, speaking of that, out of a city in, in Brazil where they made available to their population uh, daily doses or uh, biweekly doses of, uh, of ivermectin. Uh, 135,000 citizens took them up on that ivermectin availability. 88,000 did not. The final result of that in the population that chose to use the ivermectin offered by the government, the mortality rate and hospitalization rate was cut in half. Yeah, I, I- think right now in America, when you see hospitals and doctors refusing to give ivermectin uh, and people are dying, and I believe as a result of that failure, I think it is a crime. I think we're talking about at very... At least, Bob, we're talking about negligent homicide when the medical community does not supply a safe drug to a person that can predictably— get value from its user, and perhaps even save their life.
1: Bob. You know what? I would love to continue this conversation, Andy. Of course, we're out of time before we're out of uh, topics to discuss. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. And a reminder listeners to go to my website, check out Correct Me If I'm Wrong, and you'll see Andy's latest publications as well as his last ones for the last year or so. Andy, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. And breakfast soon, my friend. My, my, indeed, Andy. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show and the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees
0: back to the Bob Harton show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, of course it gets it goes against the tide of the Democrat party, but that's okay. You can find out more by visiting the website thefga.com. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. The author of several books, his latest just hit the bookshelves. It's called Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier, co-authored with uh, Buzz Aldrin. Professor, thank you so much for joining us.
3: And Bob, thanks for having me on again. I always enjoy it.
1: I enjoyed as well too. And uh, your latest column on in Newsmax, uh, by the way, uh, Larry's column is on point. Writes a couple uh, each week. Latest is Biden's next democracy summit should focus on America. It's not a widely published or, or public publicized that he's having a democracy summit. <laughs> it's apparently, apparently by Zoom of some, something like that. But irrespective, I want to get your thoughts on all that, uh, Professor. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, Bob, I'm kind of sensing that I'm not alone in recognizing some irony that uh, be Joe Biden... Preaching to the world about democracy, I, <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in, in my lifetime, is, which has been relatively long, the, who uh, has done more to perhaps corrupt and destroy and compromise democracy in this country than you know than Joe Biden. So, so I thought it was rather uh, rather noteworthy that he would be pro- he would be holding this uh, this uh, teleconference. Uh, I guess it involves 110 nations. Um, it was interesting both in the selection of, of those nations that he invited to participate, as well as the uh, you, know, you know the you know the topics addressed that uh, have to do with uh, real democracy, of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and uh, and uh, you know, fair elections, and so on. Uh, interesting times.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed, they are. And uh, certainly the selection process for inviting countries uh, just didn't make sense. And we're talking about a democracy summit. Many of the countries don't celebrate democracies.
3: Well, that's the point. And uh, rather interesting, too, uh, that in one of the countries that was excluded was Hungary. They didn't make the cut. Apparently, apparently uh, people suspect it was because Prime Minister uh, Viktor Orban is famously unfriendly to or famously friendly to president trump and perhaps less so with uh, joe biden and Hungary res- responded by uh trying to discourage other uh, european nations from attending but uh yeah there were there was you know several that were uh listed by uh you know major assessment organizations like freedom house and and others that uh suggested that many of the participants were not ones you would ordinarily think of as as free nations.
1: You know, one of the the, uh, people that was excluded was the president of one of the Central American countries, and I forget which one, but irrespective, he ended up speaking at a (laughs) pro-life conference here in the United States, which I thought was kind of uh, amusing to me at any any event. But uh, he certainly seemed to pick and choose who could participate in this thing. As I understand it, too, he cut off uh, one of the participants, so uh, when they when the uh, conversation wasn't going the way Biden wanted, he just uh, you know made sure that he could make more comments.
3: I kind of enjoyed the way that uh, the Guardian, which the British newspaper, uh, described the, you know, the the event, and uh, they said the two-day summit was could be characterized as quote an unfocused and unnecessarily divisive non-governmental organization merry-go-round or an extended photo op uh, as a distraction from the administration's crushing setback in Afghanistan. And uh, I think a lot of, you know, perhaps skeptics are thinking that, of course, a big part of the goal was to call attention away from uh, uh, the Biden's foreign policy, of course, as well as his domestic policy. Uh, Afghanistan is certainly uh, uh, very, very... uh, Significant in that uh, in that list yeah. in terms of you know abandoning our own people as well as our equipment and and uh, you know just a crushing defeat is really the worst uh, military debacle probably in U.S. history. Yeah, and uh, that was not lost. That that was not lost on uh, I'm sure many of the other. Uh, International attendees, as well as a lot that
1: stayed home. Yeah, the image of uh, the United States abroad has certainly been tarnished, and uh, right now this is his attempt to kind of garner and demonstrate that we're leaders in the world, uh, in the world uh, stage. Uh, But irrespective, we've got some things hanging fire right now that are pretty threatening, for including what's happening in Taiwan, what's happening with Russia on the border of the Ukraine, and uh, so many other situations that are pretty volatile and threatening, and of course. Biden right now is is not creating an image of uh, leadership. <laughs> Saber rattling on his part is going to be pretty ineffective.
3: Yeah, you mentioned a couple. Of course, uh, of course, we have you know China uh, really very threateningly uh, uh, making overtures in Taiwan, which which is going to uh, really test Biden's weakness, and then we have. As you mentioned, uh, Putin surrounding the Ukraine now, and uh, grave threat there in terms of what what will we do to respond? I think there's been some kind of saber saber rattling by uh, Secretary of State Blinken and so on. But push comes to shove, we you know it's a it's a very terrifying situation because you know nobody wants war with Russia. That would be insane, right? Uh, but it's, it's, it's a time that really demands some brinkmanship on the part of federal government. And then we've got Iran, of course, uh, with with the Biden bunch pushing to get this Iran nuclear deal um, passed it at uh, any cost. Iran is really uh, thumbing their nose at the Biden administration. They won't meet directly on any negotiations, nor do they really have any reason to. They're almost at the point of having uh, the uh, weapon-grade uranium that's necessary for really doing some serious damage. And, uh, you know, we've allowed that to happen without inspections. And now they're testing. It looks like they're preparing for, you know, to demonstrate launch capabilities that are nuclear capable to, uh, to put those warheads anywhere they want. So, these are These are times that really demand leadership and brinksmanship and judgment and there's no evidence in the dustbin of Biden's experience to suggest that we're in very good
1: yeah, that's, uh,
3: very good hands.
1: That's so true. Yeah now, Professor Larry Bell at the, the newsmax.com is where the column is an on point and I encourage you to visit onpoint on newsmax.com and check out uh, Professor Bell's columns. Also beyond flagpoles and footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. I'm looking forward to getting my copy and reading it as well, Professor. I Always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And Bob, I always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, former Mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, Seton Motley, the founder and publisher of History. I'm sorry, of uh, Less Government. Keith Flaw is the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. And Dakota Wood from the uh, Heritage Foundation will be joining us as well. always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.